that because I love my desire for a long time. Whether it exists or not remains to be seen. I feel like I changed my mind on that a lot. <laughs> Me too. Um, well, my name is Gabe. I'm Rouge. I'm Molly. And we are gathered here today to discuss love. <laughs> dearly beloved. <laughs> <laughs> Our dearly beloved. So how is everybody enjoying February? How is the season of love for you guys? I like February a lot. It's like very early hints of springtime and at least lately here things have been like melting and becoming flush yeah i feel like i was so jealous of people born in february growing up to be born in february or on valentine's day like just i don't know there's something like child of aphrodite vibes about it it's very chic it's so (laughs) chic and you know if there's one thing i love it's being chic yeah Conversely, I love the tackiness of Valentine's aesthetics. Like, oh, yeah. I think Molly and I talked about this once. The, the foil, the use of foil decorations mm-hmm. in these two holidays is something that is so personal and special to me. Is it because it's crinkly or reflective? or It's the crow element of shiny. Like <laughs> You're that. a crow. Yes. I'm a little crow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've noticed that. <laughs> well, so I thought maybe we could talk about some of our experiences with love and or Valentine's Day. This is definitely identifying data, so if you listen to this podcast <laughs> and this is you, I just want you to know that that's your fault and I didn't ask you to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Don't worry, nobody's going to listen to No one's going to listen to this. <laughs> One time I was supposed to hang out with this dude and I got flaked on like 15 minutes before and this was crazy because just earlier that day we had been together in a more professional academic setting and so it was, like, really crazy to flake on me after having Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> um, but the craziest part of the story is that later that week, I was driving with my brother and we were chatting about it. And he was like, oh, what day was this? And I was like, da-da-da. He was like, that's crazy because I was playing volleyball with him at the time. Wow. <laughs> that was his Valentine. Yes. So I got, yeah, I got thrown over from my brother, which is hard. That's quite a love triangle. It's so bisexual. <laughs> it is so bisexual. <laughs> Um, well, I've always been someone very prone to infatuation, and so like, I would have these crazy, encompassing, whole-body crushes from when I was very young. One thing that I did in middle school was, like, <laughs> I would identify a boy that I would have a crush on, and then ruminate and meditate on this boy's identity, and one day I was just drawn to, um write the boy's name um, in Sharpie on my stomach and then <laughs> go to school. Was it above your navel? It, ooh, ooh, good question. Because it's lower. That would be erotic. That's erotic, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't really remember. I kind of feel like it was above the belly button. Mm. How chaste and made of the mm-hmm. you. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, what chakra is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, that fucking rocks because other, other bitches were like, Mrs. John Smith on the binder, but Molly was like, no, I'm really about this shit. It's very magical, casting a spell. It was on my body, and it was under my shirt, known only to me, and I would just stare daggers at him all day at school, then come back home and like... (laughs) Yeah! This is the type of thing that people would recommend you do on TikTok now. Yes. Like, get attention. I was about to say, that is the kind of shit that I need. (laughs) Manifesting before anybody. I, Did it work, this guy? No. <laughs> and now they're married. Yeah. Oh, God. That would have been delightful, though. So I went to a private elementary school. So I, I didn't 
Okay, Montessori. Uh, it was terrible. We'll talk about <laughs> it in another episode. Um, but I, it was really small, so I didn't interact with many people my age. So when I went to junior high, I was awash in romantic prospects. Yeah. Um, and I really could not handle it. I, I think for a long time, I would freeze up when I felt attraction. It almost felt like I would lose access to my senses. Mm. I, I would just start stumbling around. And so I had to process my feelings through more abstract, artistic ways. <laughs> there was one boy in particular who I was deeply obsessed with. And we were just kind of friends. Like, I was able to talk to him on a friendly level. But secretly, I was drawing pictures of him pregnant. And <laughs> not like... Not, like, plausibly deniable. Like, it wasn't just, oh, like maybe... nine he, months. Yeah, it was... He was about to burst. Was it super realistic, also? like? Well, well I liked anime, so... Oh. No. <laughs> I was like, how would he know? How would he know? I mean, there was no way of knowing that it was him. Okay. I don't know. I was always really afraid that somebody would find out that I was doing it. Um, I was very secretive and a very anxious and neurotic child. But I have probably a notebook somewhere that's just filled with M-Preg drawings. I didn't even know what M-Preg was. And that's going to be the <laughs> that's gonna be the cover of the podcast. Right? It should. If I can find it, I will make so it. So that when you're in public, it's like a big M-Preg. <laughs> but it, yeah, it took me so long to work through the symbology of what yes. it could mean that I wanted to impregnate. A man. Yeah. <laughs> and I still think about it to this day. And, yeah. <laughs> like, four years. <laughs> I figured we could talk about something that connects all of these experiences with our early explorations of love, our flawed navigations of first thing that sticks out to me is um, being weird. Being extremely <laughs> yeah. weird about being in love. Normalizing yeah. being so fucking weird. <laughs> well, being weird and also being at a complete loss to find an outlet for these larger-than-life feelings. Like wondering and th this desire to understand, like even now retroactively, you're able to be like, well, why did I draw that? Why did I write that? There's so much about love that happens after the fact. That was something I think that came up a ton in our research. Yes. I mean, it's the oldest thing in the world. It is. And the fact that it's the oldest thing, but it feels impossible to communicate it in a very straightforward and streamlined way. Like, we have never optimized love. We've only ever made it more complicated. Dude, dating app CEOs just fall to their knees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what do you mean we didn't optimize it? So... You drafted this question, Arouge, and I kind of wanted you to walk us through it. Yeah. What you mean by it. Well, okay, so our opening inquiry, um, there's kind of two ways of wording this, which is, how does Eros manifest in the absence of a mindful, holistic, unifying definition of love? And what are we supposed to do about being in love? Yeah. What is one to do? It's like a diagnosis. It's a diagnosis. Yeah. Like, I diagnose you with boy fever yeah exactly <laughs> i feel like this is something i'm going to come back to over and over again but it, it feels like a pathology yeah um i guess everything is an illness but yes <laughs> yeah or if you don't have that pathology or more hopefully a framework for what love is going to be for you like in your experience and your love's experience then what happens like you start drawing 
and pray. Yes. Yes. Start writing people's names Many on such your cases. Literally. Yes. So maybe we should define what love is because there's so many definitions. According to the Oxford English Dictionary. So this obviously we're operating on English definition, which mm-hmm. I'll get into with my etymology. Um, a feeling or disposition of deep affection or fondness for someone typically arising from a recognition of attractive qualities from natural affinity or from sympathy and manifesting itself in concern for the other's welfare and pleasure in his or her presence. Which I think is probably just the most typical definition. It's Um, good, but honestly, I think it's too narrow even. I think you can love somebody without necessarily desiring the best for them, you know? Absolutely. Or love them (laughs) them without even liking a specific... Yeah. Ooh, this is like, now we're getting into the trenches of heterosexual romance on one level. But like, you can love somebody and not really even admire Mm -hmm. specific qualities about them. Yeah. Like, I have friends, and I I too have been there, where it's like, oh no, it's just that je ne sais quoi. And it's like, is it je ne sais quoi? Or is there like nothing that we can really grasp onto in this moment? Because, like, and that's maybe love in the negative and obsessive sense. I think I have trouble always defining it jubilantly. Yeah, I think that definition is far too virtuous. Mm -hmm. I don't think love is that (laughs) well-meaning most of the time. That doesn't mean it's actively violent, but I do think it's a little more clumsy or strange. Yes. So I'm reading, I stayed up until 4 a.m. reading Lord Ruin which is this romance novel, I believe, from the early 2000s. And it's awesome, of course. That's why I stayed up until 4 a.m. reading it. It's so horny. Of course. Um, of course. <laughs> you and your horny and, books. And that's why it's so awesome. Let me begin there. I think the ideal bodice ripper, like, it should have a sex scene at least every other chapter. I didn't know there was so much sex in them. Well, there's not so much sex in them anymore oh. because nothing's sexy anymore. Um, and, and people nobody have, wants to get off these days. <laughs> right? Nobody wants to crank the old hog anymore. Um, sorry, I said hog so many times this evening already. <laughs> this is the first on the recording. On the, so. on the recording, yeah. but hogs are on We can mind. have a hog counter if you want. <laughs> Oink. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, essentially there was this one scene that just like took my breath away where it was like a very frank discussion. You know, a bodice ripper has to have a scenario. Um, and the scenario in this case is that dude who doesn't really give a shit about this woman, they end up sleeping together and then, oh no, you guys have to get married now because a babe shall follow because mm-hmm. nobody was pulling out. Um, they were so fertile. They back were then. so <laughs> fertile back then. I mean, that shit was, they were eating like good real butter, I'm sure that's yeah. probably why. Yeah. And now that shit costs like $5. <laughs> that carry gold. That carry gold, mm. bro. Um, so that Carrie Gold had her fertile as hell, and they had to get married. But the whole time, the guy who took her V card is besties with the guy that's in love with her. So these two men are having a conversation, and he's like, "Well, I love your wife, and you love your wife, and we're not sure who your wife loves, and you're in denial about that. It would be great for you if you two could love each other, but love sucks for me because I'm never gonna get." my returns on this love that I have, you know? And, you know, not like groundbreaking idea necessarily, but I think that was lovely. Where like this one situation for two people in this love triangle is beautiful, awesome, incredible. And this other dude is just gonna be traumatized for quite some time. And and I think that story repeats all the time. There's yeah. a lot of like Muslim people joking online that's like, 
be careful, bro. Like, you are gonna marry the love of somebody's life. And that's why all, like, Muslim people are so miserable or whatever. And I was like, Jesus. That's an intense trope. Um, Okay, well, that ties really well into my research on the etymology of love, the English word. Um, I think you guys will like this. It comes from the old English... Old English. English. It comes from old English lufu. (laughs) L-U-F-U, which is feeling of love romantic sexual attraction affection friendliness the love of god yeah. so that's complicated and love as an abstraction or a personification so you really first start seeing love in english as a noun which seems significant that it's this abstract idea before it's an action mm-hmm. which ties well into our dispute with the oxford dictionary um And then you start seeing some interesting developments in it. Um, In 1742, you see this idea of playing for love that's pulled from the 1600s. Throughout time and history, we keep seeing this idea of love as a game or love as a battlefield, things like that. Um, That love is this idea that invokes other actions. Then in early 15th century, to fall in love. Um, Again, there's like a harm inherent to it um an antagonism yes i feel like that's come up multiple times yeah. where um molly and i are always on our courtly romance poem shit love For that sure. love mm-hmm. a medieval poem there's so much this sense of like an aggressor role and a passive role and then in my research on forced seduction and how that relates to love that was also subverted across time so yeah. just as we see the transition from love as a noun to a verb we see this transition between romans are like men are such horny beasts that cannot be trusted (laughs) and they will prey upon the passive women to this canonical medieval christian idea of women are such horny beasts temptresses from the devil um and men must guard the their loins or whatever and that's the true version and that's That's the most accurate and that was right like that Um, no notes. So also, also oh, though, well. like love is commodity exchange, ah, yes. where like um, women have this commodity, men will exchange it, or perhaps in some cases take defile it, it. Defile yeah. it. Right, it's something to be taken. It's something that that can be exchanged mm. um, between persons, and then that's also where you get that idea of I I don't know if I'm ever going to get my return from mm-hmm. this from this investment. From this investment. You know, investment economics. Finance, <laughs> finance bro love. Is love like a cryptocurrency? Love is the original NFT. I would agree. It's such a non-fungible token. Non-fungible? <laughs> non-fungible. It is non-fungible, truly. Right? I'm going to fund it. Ooh. Yeah. I it. So, <laughs> as I was continuing to research the etymology, you know I had to do some Lacanian research. Yes. I love Lacan. Um, he did this seminar... Um, there's this book, Lacan on Love, an exploration on Lacan's seminar eight, which is about transference and femininity. I did not read the whole thing because I mm-hmm. did not care enough. Um, but there's I I do, but no, not I'm only reading it. <laughs> you should. I mean, it's very interesting. So there's this quote from this book about Lacan's thoughts, um, and if I may read it, in ancient Greece and Rome, it was common to characterize love as an attack. Cupid being depicted as physically burning the lover with a torch or shooting the lover with arrows, even as love was celebrated as a great god. In the early Middle Ages, Andreas Cap... I... How do I say this? Capulanus? Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I don't want to say anus, but... Andreas Anus. Capulanus. 
uh, provided an apparently spurious etymology for the word love itself, deriving amor, the Latin for love, from amus, meaning hook. This ties into what you said about courtly love, because Mr. Andreas, he was a man in the 12th century of France. He wrote a book on love at the request of Marie de Champagne, who was the daughter of King Louis VII. And it was just this kind of instructional, tragic book about courtly love and etiquette. But I think it's interesting that he wrote this how-to, and yet he also was like creating these false etymological histories for the word, and violence is just kind of baked into it. I love, well, first I have to make a meme about, where it's like <laughs> me when I spread misinformation on Twitter, I'm really going to put Andre's face on yes. it. <laughs> oh, this is perfect because this is tying in all of these threads where like my big concern when we were originally pitching this idea was I was like, I need to figure out where all of this toxic book boyfriend, dude who is straight up abusive as the love interest in all of these media representations, like where is that coming from? So you have to go back and you have to do your research and you see that like in medieval representations is where we first find clear analyzable depictions of um, the male aggressor and the female passive role. To the point where some of like the earliest recorded detailed, I guess, literary narratives about rape and seduction were in certain French poems, like the lays of the time. I feel like that ties in so well to this spurious thing of like, oh, love is an attack. Love is like inflicting harm upon another person, carrying on this chain of what Cupid is doing to you. And and that was so present in some of the Marie de France poems that were referenced in this book I was reading, which I'll have to go hunt down the title of it. It was pretty long. But that medieval thesis that I was reading called The New Middle Ages by Louise Sylvester, in there she's doing all these readings and I mean, there's such an interesting meditation in that book about like, what does it mean when a woman is saying no? Because are you actually this like aggressive horned dog that knows that saying yes will make a man lose interest, which this is one of the myths that I'm sure we'll tackle later on. Or are you actually saying no and are you meaning no? Or are you saying no out of ignorance of your body and what's going on there? And so I just think it's so intriguing that the OED dictionary definition is like so exultant, so beautiful, so happy, and yet so many old and continual representations of love do this masculine aggressor, feminine victim kind of role, and people eat that shit up. I mean, like, I'm reading that bodice ripper, right? And it's considered one of the ultimate examples of a forced seduction romance. Um, if I may, unless anyone has any. Uh, thing they want to say before I do. I want to talk a little bit about Andreas's, like the principles outlined in the book that mm -hmm. he wrote, just so we can get a sense of the tenets of courtly love. So the first is that courtly love is sensual. It has to be passionate and it arises from a contemplation of beauty in the opposite sex. So it's premeditated, right? Yes. You, you have a period of longing that precedes any sort of action. It's also illicit usually adulterous. There's this line that says, Ooh. a woman cannot plead marriage as a sufficient excuse for denying a lover's um, petition. Denying so it's like, a lover's petition. Mm -hmm. That's some very careful wording yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so therefore, love is sensual and illicit. This is the third point. Um, it's usually secret. It also rarely lasts. And the last point is that love cannot be too easily obtained. 
So you see this in a lot of the poems, that anguish is coming from like, oh, we can't be together because we're married, but also that's not a good enough reason. Um, you're just in this kind of existential limbo. But I was, as I was reading this, I started having thoughts about the archetype of the Romeo and then the archetype of the brute mm-hmm. and how they're functionally doing the same things in these courtly scenarios. They're both being aggressors, but the difference really is that the brute isn't predicting the woman's true desire correctly and is therefore thoroughly brutalizing her. But the romantic man, he pursues because he knows. He knows that truly the woman wants it. Which So it kind of beckons to that that awful meme. It's literally the, the office meme. The office meme. meme. Yes, yes. Hey, beautiful. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely that. And Hello, so, HR. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the Romeo and the Brute is such a great example of these tropes that we see constantly like it shows up in that romance novel um the guy that was waiting for this girl all along and then the guy that brutalizes her and ends up marrying her the actions that are being taken the script is the same to some extent and yet depending on the woman's alleged reaction i feel like that's important like it doesn't really even matter what her true reaction is but the alleged reading of the situation that changes them idealistic, hopeful, and probably effective idea of love. I want to call back to like what the point you were making earlier about how even though love is the quote-unquote oldest thing, it's something that we still don't have a settled definition of. We still talk obliquely around and use theory and emotions rather than like data to describe In her book, All About Love, Bell Hooks sort of notices this void in the discourse where she's not encountering many satisfying public discussions or any really like unifying consensus about the idea of love and especially its relationship to gender. And so she seeks to write this book that presents a unifying, holistic, hopeful and radical idea of love as something that is not so much a noun or something that is enacted upon us as we've discussed earlier with various definitions but something that is chosen and something that is is a very active verb. This will also tie in really well to he's just not that into you um, and more medieval conceptions of of love but um, Hooks writes men writing about love always testify that they have received love. They speak from this position it gives what they say authority. Women, more often than not, speak from a position of lack, of not having received the love we long for. So again, you get that sort of power imbalance, even that commodity exchange where women are desiring to acquire this love and acted upon them. Men withhold it um, or are unable to give it uh, or do not want to give it. So then Hook's makes this distinction between deep affection and what love actually is so that we know what it is and especially what it is not. So deep affection does not adequately describe love's meaning, but rather that deep affection or profound investment in another is known as something called cathexis, which is a word I've never heard before but find so incredibly helpful, which is something that I feel like we often confuse with loving. 
what is the word? Cathexis. It's C-A-T-H-E-X-I-S. Mm. Um, but this is like this like profound investment in someone. I think it's similar to infatuation, but I like this word because it's like, I think infatuation kind of implies that chemical urge, something that like hits you like a train when you yeah. start puberty. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh. It's, it possesses you. It's What's magical. happening to yeah. my What's body? What's happening to my body? Yeah. Um, yeah, whereas like, it's more helpful to ask myself, oh, is this love or is it cathexis? Because it, it could be like this psychological investment in someone, or it could be something actually more holistic, which is to go on and describe Hooks's proposed definitions of what love could be in a more unified world, a more hopeful world. Um, she sort of borrows M. Scott Peck's definition from his book, The Road Less Traveled, which is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Love is both an intention and an action. So this differs from that Lacanian mm. sense <laughs> of an attack or like an inviolence or a feeling like inflicted upon one um, or from the old English sensation or yeah. vague noun. So then she goes on and adds to uh, Peck's definition saying that there are certain ingredients that make up what it is to truly love, including care, affection, recognition, respect, commitment, and trust, and all of these alongside open and honest communication. So it's possible to have a relationship with someone where you care for each other very deeply, but maybe don't recognize one another for your own qualities. Or perhaps you, you do care for maybe a child, but you don't respect this child because you're not honoring you know, their autonomy or something like that. So if we all agree that we have this <laughs> multifaceted and complex and very willful definition of love, then it actually, <laughs> we're all confronted with this very heartbreaking um, idea that uh, we may have actually really not ever experienced what it is to be loved or to love or perhaps we do not even come from loving homes which is so sad <laughs> it is i actually yes. gave all about love to my grandfather oh. two years ago for christmas and he could not finish it for a while because he was so struck by that revelation i haven't read the book in a while but i remember being very moved by it i don't think i've met anyone who wasn't incredibly moved by i yeah, this... so i haven't read this book you would love it i would love <laughs> it i would it. And I think, but would you love? It? Would you would would you love it? I would lerve. I would for sure lerve. But would I love it? Yes. You know, yeah. maybe that should be our title. All about lerve. <laughs> 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 um. um. But so on this note, I was I was burbling and percolating on what you were saying, and there's this um, feminist, obviously, dimension of all of this, and I think part of the reason why I haven't read it is because I've encountered it in these contexts where it's like the memes that's post breakup he's out there giving somebody back shots and you're out here <laughs> reading all about love by bell hooks and uh several oofs in that situation right now heart goes out to you you know who you are <laughs> and indeed i was texted a little snippet of this um this morning and i remember thinking this book can be so different to you depending on what mentality you're in when you read it am i reading this from the perspective of understanding love almost methodologically or ontologically mm -hmm. um or am i am i hurting and am i looking for someone to tell me that 
a lot of people have let you down and that's because you know we as a society aren't prioritizing love a whole lot and so i think i love the dimensionality of this work and what it can mean to people depending on when they read it and i think gabe like when you said like oh i haven't read this in a long time um that just made me think like oh maybe i should read it now and then maybe i should go back and read it in a few years and annotate it differently you know yeah it would be fun to see that change but this is also definitely always represented to me like oh my friends are going through a breakup and they just need a almost spiritual affirmation that it is okay you were hurt by somebody that is not socially conditioned to be able to communicate well and i think molly phrased this so much more eloquently earlier but the sensation that like you know sometimes a guy doesn't like you and then other times he likes you and doesn't know how to communicate it um and those are two things that if we get so into the socially constructed model we can be like oh how does patriarchy factor into this and then you can do that thing where it's like now this is just another reason oh he actually didn't text you because oh, I see where patriarchy yeah. um was like one of the there's two wolves inside <laughs> him and one of the wolves is called patriarchy and he was just overpowered by that emotion and couldn't couldn't articulate to you i'm always wary of frameworks like right, not just for this but for pretty much like <laughs> everything <laughs> yeah. um because i don't know if it's gonna work i don't know if it's gonna be able to really capture this or if we're gonna just use it and tiktok it and mm. i mean to me when i read passages from this book it's like it's been tiktokified to me sure so it hurts that i can't enjoy the depth of it until you for example are recapping it and so tenderly explaining what the yeah. the core ideas are I think it really helps that I'm endeavoring to read this book in the midst of like a very long and very secure romantic relationship. Yes. Yeah. Um, so when I read it, I think a lot about like the mother wound, yes. the father wound. The father wound. <laughs> and I think about it more as like a bomb for those kinds of, of traumas. traumas or like voids where love could have been. Um, and I think it's like of like <laughs> voids where love could have been. Right, that time. mother. <laughs> but yeah, I think it. I think it is like a very as far as frameworks go. Like frameworks can be dangerous, but as far as they go, I think it is like a helpful tool for addressing some of like that deep hurt. And I think it's interesting too that we were talking when we first started talking about definitions of love, we were thinking, oh, that's too narrow. Like, yeah. that doesn't fully encompass the breadth of love. And then we started talking about how you can love someone and, like, not respect them or not want the best for them. Um, <laughs> but taking into account Hooks's words, maybe we should reserve the word love for this very specific and careful and mindful thing. The good stuff. The, the yeah. good shit. Right? Yes. And, and then find other words or metaphors or for whatever other for other stuff. And and that's what I'm thinking is I'll have to read this and I think it would be so awesome to do another episode about just that book probably. But um, is that what it's meant for? Like for you to think about security and attachment in your past and love as this beautiful thing with so much multiplicity. Um, because I just, I can't vibe with this language of like revolution and feminist politic and this like deep spiritual psychological understanding and then people are using it to talk about the guy that's not texting them back you know yeah and yeah. and that's kind of 
a frustration that I've expect, expressed to these guys before. It, maybe it is a, a matter of us being picky about language, where you're so excited and you are using the language of love to talk about infatuation mm-hmm. or to talk about contextus yeah. or, um, or an obsession even. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe that feels like it's cheapening it to me. I mean, I don't think we can escape the TikTok book talk excerpt industrial complex. No, I'm thinking of Scarlett Johansson right now, like, with, like, this book photoshopped into her. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, it's one of those, any instance of somebody investigating language, it's deeply ironic that that can be taken out of context and twisted again and molded to fit the thing it was critiquing. Right. Like, it's very unfortunate it's another, that that's the case. another niche Muslim meme, of course. But, like, it's, it's when people are like, dude, Rumi was not writing beautiful poems about the guy who won't text you back. <laughs> Stop posting that shit online when you're yeah. feeling sentimental. These poems are about, like, a um, jubilant, transcendent love for God. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I truly, how many times have I seen a Rumi quote be applied to the most deadbeat guy you know? Yeah. Or a girl. Let's... Or okay. they. <laughs> oh, or they then. And we'll get into those they thems. Um, that reminds me, I just finished the sequel to The Idiot, yes. um, either or. And in the end, she's in Turkey and she's reading Rumi and she's talking about. I just want to, I want to have this confirmed. She mentions that he encountered this man and they became obsessed with talking about love and God and he would stay up night after night. They, Rumi is gay. I believe. <laughs> Go on. This, <laughs> Go on. This, this is um, an Arouge fact, yes. which means that <laughs> it's fact. probably not true. <laughs> or are we just talking about spreading misinformation? Literally me when I spread misinformation. <laughs> um, but it, it is highly suspected. Yeah. Um, there's conservative people that don't fuck with Ruby for that exact reason because they're oh, like, yo, why? Because he was a little faggy with it. He was a, <laughs> I can't say that word, but it's yes. okay. I'll say it. <laughs> Thank you. He was, and, and he was getting faggy with it with god oh right like that was the vibration and people had to interpret the beloved as this female figure um but he was writing about god in a in a you know if you conceive of god in the masculine sense a homoerotic way that is actually so funny because earlier when we were talking about the lay of marie de france there is one i think it's called eliduc but um there's one of the lay that is about to yes. people who love each other so hard they leave each other to like become closer to god because god is love and love is god and like the closer you are to god the more holy you can be and the more loving you can be and that's like the ultimate expression of yes. love you can have wow. for each other she's like really poking fun at the, at Which, the fact that's that like, god is so conflated with isn't that the love. inversion of the abelard and eloise great oh, tale of wait, love yeah what he's like a he's a boy nun a boy nun is a monk. A Friar? monk. A Friar. boy nun. I was like <laughs> imagining all sorts of things. I'm so sorry. New empire drawing. Empire drawing. Yeah. <laughs> Gabe's like, guys, I have to go home. Uh, okay, this is gonna tie. Should I go on another historical? Yes, yes. That's a that's just a closed loop of conversation. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think, but we should put a pin in that and okay. because i have some non-european things to talk fuck about fuck yeah dude um i could talk about them now yes i'm thinking non-european yeah talk about them now okay yeah. if we're going to investigate how love manifests in heterosexual dynamics this ties into so many things we've been discussing so far like 
aggressor and passive roles and whether they're relegated to men or women or something else. In my brief studies of ancient Japanese literature, there's a lot of discussion of how gender roles manifest in that. So are you, are the you familiar with the tale of Genji? It's like kind of like, like the oldest yeah. tale, it's quote unquote. The oldest written novel, supposedly. I mean, okay. so it's not the oldest written text, obviously. Um, we have like Gilgamesh and Enkidu to thank. Speaking of homoerotic kings. Kissing. <laughs> Kissing in the streets. Um, so in, the tale of Genji was written in the early 11th century by um, Murasaki Shikibu. And she was like a lady-in-waiting for the empress, I believe. It's suspected that, you know, other ladies-in-waiting wrote this. But Genji is kind of the ideal gentleman. Um, that doesn't mean that he's a perfect character. He definitely has his flaws, but he is horny. He is so horny. Oh, no. And he takes so many wives, which was, you know, kind of of the time period, but also because it's a serialized piece of fiction. So it's appealing to multiple readers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like shoujo. Yeah, I mean, it's it. it <laughs> I'm the reading stage. a little bit of the plot, and it's getting spicy in it's, there. He has so much sex. I have um, an abridged oh. version. Um, so it's the the tale of Genji is more like the tales of Genji. It's about all of these different parts of his life. It it spans his entire life, and I think it even goes into his son's life. Um, but he engages in romantic pursuits with so many women. He, you're making a scandalized face. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like so gagged right now. You would love this book. I Can I borrow? Yes. yes. It's beautiful. You might find some of my insane notes in there. But yes. um, throughout the novel, he kind of... Dem- it's, a, it's an important historical piece because it shows us what an ideal courtship looks like in different situations. And so something to note is that in this era of Japan, they also had what we think of as the European aggressor model. But it's not European. It's obviously Japanese. Japanese. Mm-hmm. And they're coming from a very isolated time period, right? They weren't right. receiving a lot of influence from other countries. So some things worth noting about this courtship in Heian era Japan is um, there's a lot of letters exchanged. It's a huge part to, to communicate via writing, poems especially, and most of the courtship happens at night. <gasps> you don't usually see each other. Mm. There's there's a lot of poems about seeing the silhouette of a woman through um, a paper screen. And then yeah. you go and find her in the night and you come into her house. And there's this whole etiquette. I'm not super knowledgeable, so I can't be exact. But there's this whole etiquette of, you know, if you break into this room, break into. It's acceptable. And she can... Mm. Um, you know, passively receive your sexual affection in this room. But if she retreats further inside the house to where other women are, you're, it's like, okay, back oh, off. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the there's architecture of the consent. Architecture yes. of consent. Um, and so there is this whole, you know, how far do you chase her? Um, are you yielding? And there's a lot of discourse about translations of this book because some people translate it to, you know, give it more of an appearance of rape. But a lot of other researchers say, oh, no, that's not actually what's happening. So mm-hmm. it's, we don't know whether these encounters are consensual, but we do know that women were writing this novel. So are we to assume that they are writing romanticized fictions of rape or should we assume that they're writing ideal courtship rituals? And what is the line between the two? I mean, right. that yeah. is the question that it's consumes. And is there a line? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of moments in this book. I mean, homosexuality, as we know it, is not really in this book. But, I mean, he does have sex with men. 
He also oh. has sex with boys, which is an entirely other dimension. But there's this one scene where he's pursuing this woman. She's so beautiful. And he follows her kind of deep into the house and then eventually retreats. And then he goes into her brother's room and is like, yo. And the end of the chapter is him saying he was very beautiful and he yielded. And so there's like the aggressor and the receiver, you know, it may not be as gendered as, as we, we think, think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so very too. stimulating and interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what comes up for you when you guys... I mean, this is reminding me not to be Eurocentric, but it's reminding me like <laughs> of a very similar situation where I'm studying a piece of literature that is um, somewhat ancient or like, mm-hmm. some, you know, or medieval. For me, it was... Um, the Shakespeare Venus and Adonis mm-hmm. where we're like discussing it in class and there's this very tricky line between consent and coercion mm-hmm. and I'm all of a sudden I'm like really triggered because <laughs> yeah. I just am like oh my god like um my main point being here like it, it's so deeply upsetting for how long there has been like, coercion has been part of the course. Yeah. It's so deeply ingrained into the texts of history across the world, across time. But that's only one view of it, you know? Yeah. Like, that's me That's me sitting in my, in my little chair, in my little English seminar, <laughs> like, getting triggered because of my own personal experiences. That's one, that's one reading of it. So, I guess maybe something we can investigate for as long as we want is... Why is it beneficial to the receiver of affection to not yield? I was just about to talk about this. What makes retreating back into the rooms a... And this is talked about in a ton of the background work that I did for the forced seduction element. What makes that retreat creating a chase and upping the romantic states and the excitement that's implicit in this encounter... And when does that become fleeing out of fear? Mm -hmm. Because maybe from a bird's eye view, those two things look the same. But I think that's what I'm always so irritated with with a lot of these discussions of like, is seduction fantasy a proof that all women have rape fantasies? Like that is such a pretty big chunk of academic paper writing at this nexus of like psychology and gender studies and literature. I don't think this is that deep. I think people can differentiate between these things. Or I think, and even if you can't articulate that, I think subconsciously people would be able to be like, no, that feels like rape, but that doesn't seem like it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's this desire in academia, like, well, I have to differentiate my reading from what else is done on the topic. Mm-hmm. And part of me wonders is like, are we doing these multiple readings of consent situations um, are we manufacturing a situation here by being like, well, but have we considered? Um, I'm sure the author intended it to be one way or the other. My interpretation of at least the tale of Genji is like, a group of women are writing about this. It's a courtly love kind of element. Um, probably they tried to represent different elements and the theme or the mood of the scene, the way that this is being written would give us an insight into was this encounter consensual? Was this other encounter not consensual? And Lord of Ruin goes crazy on this because the heroine is high off of laudanum when she loses her virginity for the first time. So she thinks she's having an elaborate sex dream and 
for her, the sex dream's going crazy. And then the next day when she's awakened and they're trying to break this news to her, of course, instantaneously, the mood shifts because the amount of information that she had about this scenario has shifted. So what in one moment was very erotic in the context of a dream was beautiful to her, now feels very, very different. Um, and a lot of the book is about her exploring her body's reaction to what her changing relationship with her husband is like because of how they first encountered each other. That's fascinating. What's this book called again? Lord Ruin. Oh my god, it, it's really stunning. Um, and I can also see how it would be deeply triggering for other people, you know? And and that's something that I'm so interested in. Is I'm sure it's triggering other people. Yes, is <laughs> creating a toxic. Energy. Well, no, it's is how we could all read the paper that referenced Lord Ruin. They called this the one example that was unequivocally rape. Interesting. And then I read it and I was like expecting this terrible negative British scene, but the entirety of it was from her perspective and it was a sex dream. And I was like, oh, like now I don't know what to think. And so I felt like I was misled by that thesis where I saw it referenced. Because I was like, you are so overtly putting your interpretation onto this. But it was more oblique. Yeah. If anything, it was centered in a way I think that made that person uncomfortable. And so then they're 180 again. I, in this discussion of cultural relativism and consent, I find myself thinking a lot about the etiquette of gift giving. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah. it, I mean, in America, we're very white American culture is very much like here's a gift and then you say thank you mm-hmm. and it's very short but in other places it can be more elaborate there's like no like I don't want yeah. this and so th- it, I think of them as kind of parallel I don't know the yeah. ritual the ritual aspect and the yeah. exchange yeah yeah there, okay so um, this is not my story it's, I, it's, I heard it from one of the people involved in it but um so I have an old boss who is white and was born in America, and he works with a lot of um, East Asian grad students. Mm. And so like he was describing to me this misunderstanding he had with one of them where she didn't have anybody to pick her up from the airport at like one in the morning. And he had said to her, if you need things, call me. And so she did, and he was, and he was like disoriented. He was like, "Yeah, of course, I'll come get you. You know, you're staying at the airport." And so he did, and he got her, and he took her home, and everything was fine. Um, and then the next day, or so, like she gave him a hundred dollar bill, oh. and so he was like, "Well, that made me feel like shit because I don't want to be, I don't want to be paid for that. Like I did that for you because I care for your well being on this level." Um, and he didn't understand. When he talked to somebody else who sort of understood better these, another East Asian woman who understood these ideals, like these Confucian ideals of exchange. The woman who was picked up from the airport, her idea was that this is how much money I would have spent on an Uber. And thank you for doing that for me. And now the exchange is complete. It's so it, too big of a favor to just shrug off in the American way that's like, yeah. I got you this time, you get me next yeah. time. Right, like the it, the skills had to be balanced and that was her way of maintaining a positive relationship with this person. Yeah. I think scales is the perfect way to describe it is because she's trying to take this unequal scale back to center as quickly as possible versus um, in American culture, it's like, oh, it's fine to leave it that way for quite some time. 
because the implicit is like you're my friend or mm-hmm. you're somebody I wanted to do this good thing for because I know eventually you'll bring it back to center. And so that that yeah. intrigues me. I feel like that ties really well into this idea of exchanging protests yeah. before you consent. Yes. Which is you are both, you're testing the scales. You're weighing whether you will be indebted to each other because yes. absolutely in these eras and in today as well, Having sex, there are expectations that come mm. afterward of marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and whoa, you'll, whoa, Gabe. Whoa, whoa. I, know, I mean, you know, Trad moment. it's interesting <laughs> in the tale of Genji, sex does not lead yeah. to marriage. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of European narratives, yeah. sex must lead immediately to marriage or sex is how you consummate equal, a marriage. Yeah, you consummate. So yes. there's an, an idea of dance. I mean, it's, and that was why um, Lord Ruin was so intense to read. Where it's like, this chick goes from being a spinster who's like, I must not even dream of marriage to this happens. And it's like, girl, you are getting married today. Yeah. <laughs> to fucking day. Which is such a, a massive mental shift. It comes from, I feel like, the rules. So we talked so much about these rules and these advice and these tips. And one of them is like, you know, don't be too eager. You have to play hard to get. You know, and then you can't overtly acknowledge this underlying sense of exchange, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, it's rapey and weird to be like, well, I took you out to dinner, so let's go to my place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I paid for this really nice dinner. Like, you know, the sense that you owe me something. And I, I think in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I was, like, watching a little bit of a few days ago, there is a guy that's like, you know, he's such a rat. Like, he's, he's implying this um, to Audrey Hepburn's character. And so it's like, but if it is an exchange, if if we are supposed to play these games back and forth, these ideas all come from somewhere, I think. Like, no one yeah. is uniquely, independently, in a vacuum, just deciding to be a pig to women. <laughs> I think. Except for me. Except for you. <laughs> well, then maybe on that note, we can talk a little bit about a movie with men who might be pigs to women. Hog? Question mark? So in anticipation of our love episode, we watched a film together titled um, He's Just Not That Into You. Um, It came out in 2009, right after the financial crisis, or in the midst of it, rather. Abruj, were you the one who recommended it? Oh, I'm sorry, you're eating a candy? I didn't know you were eating a candy. I have my little dog going in my mouth. (laughs) But yes, I recommended it. I had seen it before. It traumatized me a bit, I think. I remember watching this during the pandemic on Netflix Tea Party. Oh, yeah. And when you brought it up, I remember the movie also really hurt my feelings. I've never seen the whole thing because they would air it on USA Network, which me, 13, I I was watching USA Network programming. I remember, like, catching clips of it between commercials and and hearing these very hard (laughs) truths as a tween. It's such despondent messaging from this movie, like, the title itself. Oh, yeah. well, that's disappointing at best and, like, crushing at worst. When it came out, I remember asking my mom if I could watch it because I was probably, what, junior high? And she got upset because she did not like the movie at all. So I'd never seen it mm. because my mom had outlawed it. But, yeah, I was really looking forward to it. So a brief synopsis for people who haven't seen it. 
Who wants to give a synopsis? I don't have one pulled up. I can synopse. For the okay. uncultured swamp. Yes. <laughs> I can synopse and then I will do some letterbox greatest hits potential. Yes. We should movie. read some like one star reviews. Oh, there's there are some bangers in here. <laughs> um, but let's begin. This movie is set in Baltimore. It's a bunch of people in, I believe they're 30s. It said allegedly 20s and 30s. They're just navigating all these different relationship quandaries and conundrums. There's a couple of different couples at the center, but all these people are connected to each other in some way. A lot like Love Actually or like another fun ensemble movie. The Queen Jennifer Aniston, Ben Affleck, uh, Busy Phillips, I believe was in Busy this. Busy Phillips, yeah. Very mother. supporting role. Bradley Cooper, Scarlett Johansson. And Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer yes. Connelly. Um, and then what was the guy's name? That we all recognized? Justin Long. Justin Long. Oh, yeah. yeah. Justin B. Long. Justin yeah. B. Long. <laughs> um, was in here, and it was a, it was an intriguing watch. Some people break up. Some people stay together through it all. And then we end with a very intriguing reel of, you know, the final relationships that have emerged from this web of 30-year-olds in Baltimore who are all white. And all somehow know each other and are Except fucking each other. Except for Justin Long. Right. Latino King? No, no he's <laughs> Asian. Stop. <laughs> Justin Long. Justin fucking Long is Asian? <laughs> so Rouge So Rouge. Rouge. The South Asian doesn't know. <laughs> I did not clock my Your brother. Brethren. That's fucked up. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, it's I'm okay. gonna Google that while Mother reads the one star review. So wait, before we get into the review, I feel like we should say the rhetorical centerpiece of the film is that women don't want to come to terms with the fact that men don't want them, usually. The movie is essentially saying that women are delusional most of the time, and men are committophobes and horny. And it's trying in the and beginning. Logical and rational. They're so logical and rational. Mm-hmm. It's trying to position at the beginning of the film that there's no morality to love, that people just end up with who they end up with, not because they deserve it. But the finale of the movie actually goes against this. The people who are well behaved end up with each other, and the people who are poorly behaved are hags and alone. Even if you haven't seen it, you now have a sense of how confusing and polarizing the film is. And for evidence, let's read some one-star reviews. I do want to make an interjection. I don't think he's Asian, guys. Justin Long is not Asian? His father, R. James Long, is a white man. And his what? mother, Wendy Lesniak. Wait, is this a Bjork situation? I think this is a Bjork t- Wait, what the fuck? Guys, he's not Asian. You tried to cancel me? <laughs> I came back stronger. What? No, Justin Long has to be Asian. I'm Googling. I'm just Guys, Googling. I can clock a Asian. Like, I'm just going to say that. Um, I, li- I want to call my mom, but I can't because I'm recording. <laughs> is he not Asian? Wake up, America. Wake up. He is of German, Sicilian, and Polish. Oh, he's sense. Sicilian. Okay, so he's basically He's a bit spicy white. <laughs> he's Asian. It's an island. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Japan. Wait, like Japan. Like <laughs> Japan. Are you saying that Sicily is like... Asia? Yes. <laughs> I have just declared it to be so. Okay. Okay. I will read a less funny one. So I did get, I canceled myself in fact. It was yes, yes. Good. That's fucked yeah. up that you, a white woman, thought it was Asian. I'm, <laughs> I'm Asian, so I'm allowed to yeah, make yeah. that mistake. Like Gabe, and also you're a man, so you yeah. can assume things about other people. <laughs> um, but my little letterboxed thing is 
The scene where Jennifer Connelly smashes the mirror on the ground in frustration, breaking it into a million tiny pieces, and then immediately goes to get a broom to sweep it up on her carpet, we might add, is such a mood. It's the best scene in the film. Like, she served yeah, cunt. Yeah. She did serve cunt, and then she had to pick up the pieces Literally. of her cunt. Of her cunt! <laughs> Which just goes to show, like, even when she does do the sort of, like, impulsive, amoral, cathartic explosion so, of emotion, yeah. she still is a good and dutiful. Right? <laughs> when she, so when she throws all... Also, that's so important. Right? <laughs> but when she throws out all of her husband, played by Badrick... Bradley Cooper. Patrick. Patrick Patrick Boober. So her husband, Bradley Cooper, she throws all of his clothes out down the stairs. And then later when he comes by to pick them up, she's left a simple little note. And she's folded everything, even the socks, and organized yeah. them. Kyle, a pro user, says, Straight culture is going to Home Depot to have an argument. Tacky and tasteless. In parentheses. <laughs> Anyways, Ben Affleck, please plow me by the sink faucet <laughs> and choke me with an extension cord oh. before laying me down on a 4 by 4 and spanking me with a hot sheet of iron. Wow. Yeah, Ben Affleck is very important he to gay culture. He serves and chin in this movie. Like, is he the abusive brother? Uh, uh, there's more than one Affleck? Isn't there? Kay there's Casey. Is Casey's the one who... Oh, then you shouldn't be attracted to. I think so because he's evil and naughty. But Ben yeah. Affleck was apparently mean to Jennifer Garner, so I don't think we're supposed to like him either. My God, who are we supposed to like? Nowadays? I mean, you know he's like toxic as fuck with J Lo. Oh, you know, yeah. even though they love each other. Is he married to J Lo? Yeah, yeah. J Lo. This is his second yeah. time marrying J Lo, right? That's gay. And I know it's gay as hell. And then at the Grammys, she like looked over him at one point and was like, "Stand up straight, or, sit up straight," <laughs> and like it's caught on camera. You know? Okay, but wait, but can we talk about, like, how everyone in this movie is kind of closeted? The gay people are so annoyingly gay. <laughs> so, I guess to preface, we should mention that all of the dynamics are heterosexual. It would have been so much messier if they had just leaned into the bisexuality. But the only gay people in this film serve as a sort of Greek chorus yes. to a tragedy, which is fascinating. I think there's seven... Seven gay male characters? Are there? Are, are there's there, quite a few. I mean, they're not a named, lot of them. though. They're right? not. They're just gay. They're one. just gay. Gay, gay one, one. Gay, gay, gay two. male two. Gay male yeah. three. There's over four for sure. I and feel they're like there's blatant a lot. pandering to the gay community. Yeah. That's a bit because Connor buries this real estate agent, and he decides to take out an ad in the gay personal section yes. of the newspaper Which, for his agency. He, so he was queer baiting. He was queer baiting. <laughs> he was the Harry Styles. If this was remade yes, in 2023, he'd be played by Harry Styles. Oh, God. Harry Styles would play the fuck out of him. He wore that <laughs> ugly jumpsuit in that one scene where he's yeah. coming on the purple shirt. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Justin Long's like, look at this fine, handsome man. And we were like, wait. This also like goes to my point about... Justin Long being this bisexual oracle at the center of this movie. Cassandra. Yes, yes, a Cassandra of sorts. He is this interlocutor between men and women in the movie. He is able to sort of talk to men about what they may or may not be doing right or wrong, and then able to relay that information or different information to women who are interested or in pursuing these men but not getting responses. He also has this super homosocial relationship with his roommate, who is pursued by one of the main characters, Gigi. 
I feel like he is coded bisexual in the movies he because is. he's able to he, navigate so far. He's a metrosexual bartender. He is yeah. a, <laughs> a bartender. A bartender. Yes. Um, but he literally, he is the Gigi whisperer, right? Yeah. Like he's the mm-hmm. only person that understands women and men well enough to get through Gigi, who we are meant to understand as this freak, anxious, girlish woman. <laughs> she is freak coded. Freak coded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's always tweaking. She's so quirked up. Um, you know, if if they remade this, her hair would be blue. You know, true. Yeah, she would. She would have like a weird political liberal thing going on. She would have a nose sure. ring, maybe. Yes, maybe. This might be fucked up to say, but I just I don't see a straight man being interested in Gigi. The way that Justin Long's character interacts with her feels like a gay best friend. Yes, because mm-hmm. he's hyping her up. He's steering her clear of disaster. And that's why that scene where she jumps on top of him and tries to kiss him, like, we all recoiled. The movie is not sexy. Oh, not, in, not in the least. But that scene is a total reversal of the yielding female, the aggressive male. Yes. They sub- and that, but, but that's why it didn't work. Yeah, right? that's true. She's he's disgusted. He's like, ew, you're not a boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say, um, Justin Long... What is his character's name? Isn't it Alex? Alex. Alex and Connor. Connor with one N. They Connor. Li- they, Connor. They're roommates, supposedly. Oh my God. Um, they, they have an open floor plan, like kitchen, dining room, living area. which Exposed brick. Oh. I feel like that's gay. If, that's if you gay. and another man live in a place with an open floor plan, that, that's gay. I don't what know. What else is open? Literally. Your bedroom <laughs> yeah. door. Okay, also all the like... Deep maroon and slate gray. Yes. The, the, yeah. the aesthetics of this movie, the gobshite art, like I, it's, you know, <laughs> the interior decorating, or should I say lack thereof. It's so ugly. Did, you know this movie was fucking cacophonous. Maybe yeah. that is my takeaway. Because, yeah. I mean, we got to the end, and I remember all of us looking at each other like, all right. <laughs> so... You know, and, and during, we were, we kept asking these questions, like, you know, what's going to happen to Gigi? Is she going to learn this lesson that men are just, like, not that into her? Is she going to grow from it? Is she going to land a baddie for herself? Like, what's going on? And then, ultimately, Gigi and Alex end up together after Alex rebuffs her when she jumps on top of him and does that awful dead fish kissing stuff. Yeah, yeah. and then she goes on a diatribe of, well... At least I'm closer to finding love than you are because I actually put myself out there and I'm not just sour and a curmudgeon. Right. I was which, not convinced by which that. Which we were no. both. Monologue at all. But like we we three kind of looked at each other in that moment and we're like, well, is he even looking? Yeah. First of all, the monologue was terrible because I was like, Gigi, babe, like you are so. There's no ethos here, and and she's trying to stand up to Justin Long, who literally is getting way more pussy than she is, drowning in it really. It's just like, what was what was the point of this movie? Was kind of my main takeaway. Because I was like, okay, is he just not that into you? Dot, dot, dot. Until he happens to be? So this is the perfect segue for me to discuss the inception of the movie. Your which friend. I learned about from finding a random ass article that left me with more questions than answers. This is from albertmuller.com. I don't know who this guy is. I found it when I was on scholar.google.com. Sounds Hollywood. Um, He's just not that into you. A postmodern secular romance. Which immediately I'm like, is that true? Would we say that this is a postmodern secular romance? Secular how? That's what I'm trying to say. Also postmodern how? 
I have no idea. So I take offense on multiple levels here. We're taking this man's words with a grain of salt. The only reason I'm referencing this is because he talks about the inception of the movie, which was produced at the same time as a self-help book. So I think that gives us some context as to why in the hell does this movie have a happy ending. The authors explain, the book grew out of an accidental conversation in the writer's room of Sex and the City. The female writers were talking, pitching ideas, this is a quote, our personal love lives weaving in and out of the fictional lives we were creating in the room. So there's this element of fantasy in the imaginary. And just like on any other day, one of the women on staff asked for feedback on the behavior of a man who she liked. He was giving her mixed messages. She was confused. They go on to describe how, you know, the women have discourse about this man's behavior. And, and this they, exact scene happens in the movie. Yeah. With different workplaces, even. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They concluded that, quote, she was fabulous. He must be scared. He's never met a woman as great as her, etc., etc. But the female conversation was interrupted by a male consultant for the program who walked into the room. And then the author of, of the book says, Greg listened intently to our story and our reactions and then said to the woman in question, listen, it sounds like he's just not that into you. And then Liz writes, this simple observation dawned as a great metaphysical discovery on the part of the female writers. We were shocked, appalled, amused, horrified, and above all, intrigued. We sensed immediately that this man might be speaking the truth, a truth that we in our combined... <laughs> I know. <laughs> Why is it a prophecy? Because it, it came from my A truth that we in our combined hundred years of dating experience had never considered and definitely never considered saying out loud. Which I just was baffled by Okay, this. agree with the last part. No one considers saying that out loud to their friend who's really invested and just so enthralled because... It's hard to say you're kind of being a freak right now. <laughs> yeah. And this dude will never love you. Like, yeah. it just, it seems so hateful. Even phrasing it as like, oh, it just seems like he's just not that into you. Um, is so antithetical to the approach and these conversations that I have gotten tired of, I guess. Where it's like, no, babe, like, you're perfect and you're awesome and he's just scared and he's just this. And he might have gotten hit by a bus and maybe his phone, like, exploded in his hands and that's why he didn't get to text you. I feel like it's so much energy spent psychoanalyzing a mind that doesn't psychoanalyze itself. I mean, it's true. Like, Bell Hooks is also talking about this. Like, society is not invested in you developing your sense of your inner life and your emotions and your ability to communicate those things with other people as a man. And so, like, why am I sitting over here constructing this elaborate narrative to soothe my friend when realistically in a few weeks all this is going to fizzle out anyway? Because she will eventually reach that conclusion. Or the sake of all repeat. Yeah. I mean, and it does. Like, she'll eventually reach the conclusion, oh, he's just not that into me, I guess. Let's ditch this. And then the new person comes up, and then you're doing the whole song and dance again. I think it's so telling that this movie is based on a self-help book because you see this slew of gender essentialist yes. relationship advice or self-help yeah. books. And Bell Hooks talks about it, too. Like, she's talking about this void in the discourse and, like, what it means for women to write about love and for and versus for men to write about love and i hear she like she's even talking about rumi and rilke um yes i cherish my rumi and my rilke male poets who stir hearts with their words men often write about love through fantasy through what they imagine as possible rather than what they concretely know 
We now know that Rilke did not write as he lived, that so many words of love offered to us by great men fail when we come face to face with reality. And even though John Gray's work troubles me and makes me mad, I confess to reading and rereading Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, which oh. I haven't read that book. I've listened to like synopses of that book. It is horrendous it's really? so terrible it's oh basically just this guy writing about like how terrible he is to his wife and basically like advice God. advice that he gives to her and to women in general so that women can understand it more when men need to go to their cave and not oh, yeah. talk about feelings and not care for them because that's just this how, is how to not be like my bitch wife right because they are men inherently communicate differently than women um, which is something that Hooks is like, I don't think that's true. I think you know what's crazy to do that, but I think that I literally had this conversation with my brother earlier. Hamza, shout out, shout out to you, dog. I know you're gonna listen to this at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were talking about this today, where I was like, I think him growing up with three sisters means that maybe he is the rare exception of men and women are biologically or like socially designed to communicate differently. Like, I think in a lot of cases, like, he's really good at expressing himself and communicating in a way that's open and honest about how he is feeling, in a way that's, you know, a little fruity, a little feminine, right? But, I mean, I feel like that's just what happens when you are around more women and you're able to communicate better that way. I have a theory that I, I can't really articulate fully, so I need y'all's help. But I think that this dynamic is born of these really ancient courting rituals. The woman is expected to wait and be aggressed upon. And so what else is there to do while you're waiting but imagine? The courtship model parallels predation. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that, not that I think being courted is like being preyed upon, but in the same way that a creature that is anticipating the arrival of an aggressor, it, it starts to consider what might happen. I guess yeah. a, a specific neuroses to yeah. like how you might be approached. We literally call it cat and mouse, you know? You're right. right? Or yeah. this, what does a cornered animal do? Yeah. Like yeah. that kind of... Kiss? <laughs> smooches? <laughs> um, but I think there's something there with that. Yeah, I mean like with the threat of pursual, what are you to do but rehearse? Back to our discussion of like cultural relativism about courtly love, it would really help us to understand them if we really lived the etiquette of courtship at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think if we're applying that here and now today, like especially with this movie, I think there is a sort of etiquette or expectation for the one who is being pursued or predated to give a certain level of refusal because if you give a certain level of refusal, then you have done your due diligence and you are not a whore. Right, and I mean, that appears in courtly romance for sure. That also appears in this modern dating advice. Like we're saying, like, how does this all trickle down into what are the rules for today? Like, what else could have possibly borne this idea of, like, let's have the same conversation with the besties about the same dynamic with a guy that is, like, the same dude but in a slightly different font? What else is that a result of but this idea of Rapunzeling yourself? I'm in this tower and I'm waiting and I'm mm. waiting and I'm waiting and oh, this is what I saw today and this is what I saw today. And it's like like dispatches, you know? And there's something very prison-like and cyclic like we talked about with that. The predation especially is like kind of what I'm so intrigued by in this movie. The Bechdel test is like one thing that we joked about. Like, could yeah. this movie pass the Bechdel test? 
But the opposite, like two dudes talking about their feelings happens twice in the whole movie, I think. And one of them is actually a really funny moment at the very end where to show that Bradley Cooper's character has been adequately punished. Um, because that's his whole storyline, is that he is cheating on his wife, portrayed by Jennifer Connelly, who breaks the mirror like we talked about earlier, with Scarlett Johansson, who is this blonde-haired slut, um, <laughs> who has the audacity. Um, and I think at one point even says the corny, like, you know, what if he's the love of my life? Like, yeah. Why would I let his wife get in the way? It's like that courtly rule that we talked about from that French book. Yes. Marriage is not a legitimate excuse for you to not pursue this illicit love. Exactly. Yeah. I think he literally uses that justification at mm. one point. Like, oh, what am I not allowed to, like, feel things anymore? The, yes. movie, the movie does pass. It passes the, the Bechdel? No fucking way. Um, though the movie revolves around relationships, there is a segment where Beth and her sisters, all named, are discussing the bridesmaids' dresses for at least a full two oh minutes before the conversation Hello? turned to Beth's recent breakup. That's hilarious. <laughs> About a wedding dress? I don't know if that, that counts. counts. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, the, but the guys never talk to each other, and at the end, to show that he's adequately punished, Bradley Cooper is quote-unquote, like Gigi would say, like still doesn't get it, and he's not putting his heart out there, because the reporter's asking him, you know, what's it like to not be married anymore? And the guy's like, are you married? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, just laughing mm-hmm. to derisively. He yeah. also laughs derisively when he talks to Ben Affleck. Because oh, they're on the sailboat, right? On the sailboat, and he jokingly refers to a wedding as a funeral. Yes. Yeah. And it's like this kind of guy yeah. that's like reverse insult. Wait, I think that's just like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm, my bad. <laughs> I, wanna, I want to unpack his character because he, he doesn't seem very attracted to the idea of being with a woman. I mean, he's horny as hell. He's horny as hell. Yeah, he's giving us nothing. I mean, he has frosted tips. He has frosted tips. The implications. So this is reminding me, I was speaking to my Valentine last night about this, and he just rewatched The Other Bowling Girl. (gasps) I've been meaning to watch that. Do you you know Henry VIII? The guy. The guy? The wife beheader. Oh, yeah. Yes. So he... I'm going to try and recall the story of Henry VIII as best I can, based on my boyfriend telling me about the movie about Henry VIII. So, so this is a Gabe fact. This so this is, is a, a postmodern secular yes. <laughs> This is a Gabe fact. So basically, Henry VIII was married to his wife, the queen. After she has another miscarriage, which is very sad, he is on the prowl for some pussy. And he becomes interested in multiple women of lower class. I don't know what their status was, but he impregnates one. And, you know, because she's pregnant, then she's put in a tower or some shit. Rapunzel. Yeah, she's Rapunzel because it's, oh, you can't interact with her because she's now carrying potentially your son and your sex would defile her further or endanger the baby. Which, medical fact, is not true. Not true. You can have sex up until right before the baby's about to fucking come out. He should have done that. So, psychologically, he was very harmful. In the meantime, he's like, you know, fucking other people. But specifically this woman's sister. Oh! And she essentially, according to the movie, I don't know how true this is, is, tells him, I won't be with you unless you divorce your wife. And Henry VIII is like, I can't divorce my wife. I've had sex with her. But how would they know? Well, I mean, because she kept having miscarriages. Right. So he right. takes his wife to court 
to basically say this sex was not bomb, therefore... You know, and Islamically, she would have had the right to do that at least. I don't know if a man is allowed to divorce his wife. Uh, Yeah, I think Islamically, the pussy's always good. Unsubstantiated. (laughs) (laughs) I'm making a shocked face. Um... (laughs) And I'm making a I'm fogging. Okay, <laughs> so uh, he tries his wife for whatever stupid reason. Uh, basically, the Pope gets involved and says, "Wait, oh, you no, not the Pope? You because her pussy's so trash." Yeah, he, the Pope was like, "Wait, you you couldn't have divorced her because you did indeed uh, consummate, and therefore the Church of England is born." These rituals are not always properly funneling our desire. Sometimes freaks are freaky beyond cultural practices and norms. So like Yeah, I think it is important to remember when we talk about courtly love practices that these were codified during a time when marriage was absolutely not about love. It was was about it was economics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think something to take away from Mr. Henry's story is that these rules were very subject to change. We might think of them now as kind of being concrete and very particular and complex, but they were changing constantly based on whatever the most powerful person desired. As far as what a marriage means? Yeah, or just how do you court someone or how do you... Mm -hmm. Get some right. pussy. And how involved is God in all this? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, so. I know God was not looking. So I've been thinking about Henry VIII all day because what a beast. What a fucking <laughs> not beast. Like, not like a beast as in like swaggy, but like a creature. I believe <laughs> yeah. one person that I was involved with once introduced me to the term pussy hound. And I got really upset and didn't want to talk to him for the rest of the day because I hated it. But so Henry VIII that. was for sure a pussy hound, yeah. I think, is my takeaway. Any final thoughts on the film? What would you rate it out of five? My letterbox rating for this would probably be like a two. That's where I'm at as well. Yeah. Yeah. You have to agree because we both said it's a two. <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's like a two. It's a very frustrating movie. Lots of hot people in it, so that's probably yes. the extra star. Literally. I had a wonderful viewing experience with you all. What yes. would you change about it to more accurately reflect reality? <laughs> we said this. Oh. They is just not into you. Our <laughs> non-binary <laughs> Yes. They is just... <laughs> they is just not into you. They do need to make a version of this with the polycule. Yes. And the polycule sort of fragments off. As they always do. Yeah. Yeah. And such. Yes. I thought it'd be fun to make up our own courtship rituals based on both the insane goofy things we've done as horned up teenagers, but also our highfalutin knowledge as academics and philosophers. So my first proposed courtship ritual is that similar to Pan Air Japan or medieval Europe, you don't deliver letters, but rather images of your lover Mm. impregnated (laughs) <laughs> yes. You you deliver these in the dead of night and they should be as unrealistic and deviant art as possible. This is a way of expressing your desire to um you know you get it. Yeah. <laughs> a little wink. Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe you can like take it one step further. I guess one step back. From, <laughs> um, We're devolving from like 
emblazoning your own flesh with with a lover's name but like maybe maybe draw a sigil or two oh if you like and like i don't know I'm not not to say like the whole I want this person to love me so I'm going to manifest their love for me like all that love potion shit but no it's like if you have a goal with someone you have an established relationship with you're not going to meet that goal unless you quote unquote set that intention yes that's a way more appropriate according ritual than mine I respect it well <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll come up with something no you insane. Insane. no I like it I like how I think it's very beautiful it's a nice take on manifestation and stuff yes yeah, so much more releasing for the subconscious i think than the tiktok manifestation stuff where it's like a whole like ripped out piece of notebook yeah. paper shitty <laughs> pencil handwriting and the same sentence like i will have him yes <laughs> like maybe maybe that's my advice is like if the thing that you're doing could be read by another person as a symptom of a mental breakdown <laughs> probably it's not an effective way to get your bag up it will neither help you nor your boo, you know? How can we take energy that we're feeling that can be scary, that can be hard to manage, hard to articulate, and crucially, like we had this conversation a little bit off camera earlier, but it's, it's hard to even articulate what place you are at in life to a friend, even when they're very understanding. It's hard to even articulate how you feel about love given that specific context. And so sometimes you just have to sit there with that emotion by yourself and make meaning out of it in a way that's careful and kind to you mm-hmm. and not trying to communicate that feeling in a way that's palatable to the girlies, in a way that's palatable to self-help or TikTok. Because at the end of the day, like a blossoming connection between two people is going to be about how you communicate with each other and how you communicate what's going on to yourself, right? And you can't control the other person's aspect of the conversation. That side of communication, you can facilitate it, but you can't control it. But what you can control is, you know, like, what is my best way of interpreting and interpolating the situation? Basically, anytime you could be spiraling or repeating ideas or running through a situation over and over again in your head, you could be processing the feeling of love. And that doesn't mean eliminating it from yourself, but rather making art. If maybe you're making freaky empreg art or, but just right. <laughs> transforming the feeling because if, yeah. if we refer to all these different definitions, there's so many ways to interpret and define love. And I think it's a better use of your time to develop it and, and create a personal relationship with it. Um, maybe that's less of a courtship with another person, but like a courtship with yourself. Yeah. Of enjoying the mystique and the magic of being painfully in love. Yes, yeah. I, I say that to people a lot where like, I really just miss that feeling. It's so special. It's so special to have your little infatuation that can buoy you through a whole semester or a whole mm-hmm. year, like a class crush or like a yeah. whatever. And there's something so fun in that. Like don't, don't let it stop being fun for yourself, but don't let it be entertainment for others. More to your point about um, about both y'all's points about transforming or like transfiguring these feelings into something you create. I think it's really helpful, at least in my experience, to think about courting that which you create. I have had trouble and probably will in some capacity for the rest of my life writing, but what's some of the best advice I ever got was think of your piece like your friend who you want to help. 
you can like make up courtship rituals for you that which you want to bring into the world and that's such a tender loving way to ease you know you and your creation you forward. did read some hooks didn't you yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> beautiful red. that's beautiful yeah, i love that well i think that's some great advice thank you for talking with me about love oh i love you guys i love, I love you guys <laughs> and we love you